Don't forget to check out Nerd to Know Bases here on Phoenix 92.5 FM with myself, Daryl O'Connor, and Bryn O'Rourke for everything nerd culture, video games, comics, and so much more. That's Nerd to Know Bases, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. every Saturday here on 92.5 Phoenix FM. Broadcasting from the Blanchestan Center, this is Phoenix FM. And now it begins. So I just started asking the students what they were typing, 
<laughs> and I went around to the you know, paper and was just writing down keywords, basic keywords, and started to use them myself and started to figure out how to make a game on my own on a, on a, on a college mainframe when I was 11. So, uh, so if we go, so we started at 11, and then in 93, uh, you guys create Doom, and just last night they released a new trailer uh, for Doom Eternal, and nobody's asked you the question yet, at least with the microphone on your face. So, what do you think of the new, what do you think of the trailer that you saw for the brand new Doom? Awesome. <laughs> I don't know if anyone here has seen the new trailer, but it looks really good, and I was pretty happy to see that uh, in the same way that the new, uh, the, the 2016 version of Doom that came out was a really great um, like refresh of, of the Doom brand, and it was super aggressive and fast and like all of the all of the um, all of the, the things that we cared about uh, back when I was making the original Doom. It was fast. It was it was super responsive. It was super violent. Um, and, uh, and then when we made Doom 2, we didn't mess up the original formula. We just added a double barrel shotgun, a bunch of monsters, and made all new levels at a better quality than, than we had earlier. And, and I, that's basically what I see in this new Doom Eternal video is cooler weapons that they've added. They've just augmented the character. Um, better uh, capability of moving through the world, swinging from stuff, climbing walls. The environment is crazy. It looks so good. Um, so yeah, they did not mess it up at all. They just did an amazing job. So I'm really excited to play it. Did you like uh, 2016? 2016 was great. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, so speaking of violence in video games, uh, because you were kind of known for, uh, well, there was more combat before you, but then Doom really kicked it uh, up several levels. Um, I want to go back though to the first, your first episode of Violence in Video Games, which involves you in an arcade. And there's a story that is in the very beginning of Masters of Doom. Maybe I thought that, that you could share that, how your parents felt about you playing video games. Yeah, they didn't like the fact that I played video games. Um, and they told me not to go to the arcade and play it. But I couldn't not go to the arcade. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I used to hide my bike behind the arcade, so uh, when my dad would drive by and he didn't see my bike, then obviously I'm not at the arcade, but I guess he figured out that I was there since I wasn't at home and decided to just go inside, and uh, and I was playing, I think it was Asteroids I was playing, and um, I, did, I was in the middle of playing the game and I kind of heard some of my friends around go, oh, make some kind of noise, and then my head just basically got smashed into the, into the arcade game. And, um, and then he just dragged me out of there and threw me in the truck and went and found my bike that was hidden and, uh, and took me home and then beat me up some more home. So it really made me want to make games. Revenge! Did you ever apologize for that? No, no. I mean, he told me not to go to the arcade and I did, so... Has he come to terms with the fact that you make video games for a living? Yeah. Has he acknowledged He's that? He's figured it out. That it worked out <laughs> It worked out all right, yeah. Does anybody, I'm an incredibly tragic question, does anybody have any questions before I keep going on? It's hard to see with the sun. Okay, nobody has any questions except the invisible man at the mic. All right. Um, so let's go, let's move on to an embarrassing question. Uh, Are we doing that? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, right, so let's talk about, uh, which game do you guys want me to ask questions about? You can just yell it. Oh, Dyke of Mana. Oh, Dyke of Mana. 
Daikatana. I heard Quake first, so I'm going to go for Quake, then I'm going to go for Daikatana. See, we do Daikatana answers here. <laughs> <laughs> we don't avoid Daikatana. Let's talk about Quake first. Alright, but yeah, I'm just going in order. Uh, so let's talk about Quake. Um, what do you want to know about Quake? Trent Reznor? Yeah, he did play it. So let me say, oh, well, that was the question. Okay, yeah, so did The Trent question was, did Trent Reznor play Quake? Yes, he did. And Maybe talk a little bit about his involvement in Quake. Yeah, the reason, the reason why Trent got involved is because uh, Nine Inch Nail group were huge Doom nuts, and their tour bus had four, uh, 446s on it, all land connected, and they used to deathmatch all the time on the tour bus when they got done with a, with a, a gig. And we contacted um, a company called ICM in Los Angeles that represents companies and people, and we were kind of looking to see, is there anything that we can do with our brands, like movies and books and stuff like that? So we got representation by somebody at ICM, and they just so happened to represent Nine Inch Nails as well. So they figured it out that, you know, that Nine Inch Nails liked our stuff and we liked music. So they basically got hooked up together, maybe you guys can do something, and um, Trent came to the office and we basically just got to talk to him, found out he's a super, super intelligent guy, really smart, really cool, and, um, and he said he would totally be into making the soundtrack for Quake, so uh, he came to the office probably about three or four times and we went and hung out, and it was kind of funny that anytime he's coming to the office, uh, somehow people knew he was coming. And it wasn't like it's, you know, all over the internet, because the internet barely even existed at that point. Um, but there were just women all over the bottom of that building waiting for his limo to pull up. It was, I don't know how they knew. But um, they just wait, you know, he's up there for hours, they're all waiting for him to come back out. <laughs> and and uh, so it was like, that's a real rock lifestyle there. Um, but he did a good, he, he did a great job, and, um, and he, he was even involved in Doom 3 as well with audio. So he, um, he, he played Quake definitely, and, uh, and it, was, it, was, uh, it was great that he did the music for it, but unfortunately we couldn't um, have the music as MP3s, and, uh, and so I had to play off the actual CD, and that was a time where you install a game on a CD, and then you put the CD away, and so you can't hear the music the CD is not in the drive. It's not actually MP3s streaming from a directory. Um, and that was all record company stuff. They're worried about people copying these MP3s. We just had them in a hard drive versus on a CD. So they wouldn't allow us to put it, you know, to take it off the CD. So unfortunately, a lot of people didn't hear the music back then. But uh, nowadays, there's a lot of quick source ports out there, and the music's out there, and they play the music while you're playing the game now. So it's kind of came back. So we'll, we'll move on now to Daikatana, since so we might be kids in the audience. We'll also say that Daikatana had a famous ad campaign that went along with it, which rhymed with John Ramirez going to make you his Twitch. <laughs> so say, what was the Daikatana question? Uh, so, so they just want to hear about it. So well, I'll, I'll ask the question. So you go. You have, uh, so what, let's just set the stage. What number was Quake in terms of how many games you've made? Um, 
Yeah, so Quake, so you've made 100, so let's say you've made some nine, somewhere between 90 and 100 games. At that point, who's counting? And then, uh, and then you then you leave in software on August 6th, 1996. 1996, and you are off on a great adventure, and you are going to make this amazing shooter when you're making a company, first of all. Yeah. Uh, and you're going to make this Ion Storm, and you're going to make this amazing shooter called Daikatana. Now, Clearly, we you know things didn't go that way, um, and it's tough because when you you well, you know what I take dykes on on my resume if I can also have Doom Quake if I can get away with that, but um, but it's like you're going uphill and then ooh, so what what happened? Uh, so many things happened, um, but the real high level of of uh, of the issues that we had developing the game was. I brought in a couple co-founders that were not good to have in the company, <laughs> and that really disrupted a lot of the people in the company just having these guys in there. Um, and uh, and the other the other issue was that when I was making games at ID, I was working with people who had ten years of experience making games, and they they had made dozens and dozens of games just like I had. So. We were basically experts when we got together and started its software and making our games. Starting Iron Storm, I decided that I would bring in people who were uh, modders and um, people who just had a ton of passion and knew how to do do something associated with making a game. So people that had written like the Reaper bot for Quake, uh, I wanted to bring him in to, to program on Daikatana. People that had done amazing level design work. Um, for Doom and Quake, I wanted to bring them on to do levels for Daikatana. So I brought a lot of modders to, to, to the team. Nobody was from the industry, and not one single person had actually ever made a game in their life before. They'd made some levels at home. So nobody, many of the people never even had jobs before. So it's kind of like opening a restaurant, but you're the only cook, and nobody else. Exactly. So it's like, oh, now I have to teach people how to make a game. So that took three years, uh, and uh, and they had tons of passion for it. It was great, and, and it was like bringing a lot of new people into the industry through Daikatana. Um, but it was really hard to make the game with people who had no professional experience. They didn't know what a real job was like, or even best practices. And making games is really complex, and uh, the passion was was helpful for getting them through those three years, but um, they had to learn so much to, to get the game out, and it, did, it, it didn't equal what could have been done with a team that was you know, you know from the industry when I had started it. So it was a big experiment. It was a big experiment, experiment working with a team of people who had passion but not really um, any industry experience. So they got a lot of experience. And again, and the funny thing is the game uh, has a lot of fans still. I have a lot of people uh, emailing me saying, "Don't listen to what people say." I love Daikatana. There's, um, there's almost like a, an emo fan club for Daikatana. Yeah, there's a lot of people like it, and there's still uh, servers up right now that you can connect to and play multiplayer Daikatana. But if I just summarize, sort of, I guess the bigger issues are that you worked with a really experienced group of people, and and you just. You decided you, you not to work with experienced well, people. Yeah, <laughs> but you took it for granted. We'll say I right? did. I took it for granted. Yeah. Um, but uh, but overall, 
mean, you know, not every game can turn out can turn out great. And I also know Dai Katana in the beginning had some. Uh, well, I mean, even when it was launched, in sense people have corrected it, but had some uh, AI issues where you were fighting the AI as much as you were fighting the monsters. Yep, that's because the guy who was programming it had never programmed before. So he learned how to code while he was making the game as well. Oh. <laughs> so if you're taking a lesson away yes, from Dai Katana. This was an experiment. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that sounds. Uh, Alright, anything, anything else? Questions about Quake, Doom, Dai Katana? Yes, sir. Okay. For those of you who have joined us, we have six suns coming down on us, so it will be hard to see if you raise your hand. Go ahead. I just wonder have you ever um, heard of a game called Noah's Ark 3D? Of course. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we um, we wanted to license the Super Nintendo um, engine that we had written for Wolfenstein 3D, and there was this religious company called Wisdom Tree that wanted to license it for a non-violent game, and uh, and so we're like, okay, it's so they wanted to license Doom. For they want to license Wolfenstein, Wolfenstein on the Super Nintendo uh, for non-violent games. And I mean, we wouldn't do any work on it. We would just sell them our engine. So we did. We just like went, go ahead. So they made a game called Super Noah's Ark 3D, where you basically feed food to animals and they fall asleep. Instead of getting killed, they're, you're poisoning. And you don't feel like poison because there's little Z's over. But you know, you're, you're trying to put all, you're Noah, and you're putting all the animals to sleep so they can get on the ark. They're not afraid. Whatever excuse that game had for doing this. Um, it was hilarious that, that, you know, I mean, we, we just licensed the engine to him. We, it was not even anything that the, anyone outside of our, our uh, biz guy had anything to do with, other than to say, yeah, go ahead. I can say the conference, this is the first time you've been asked about Noah's Ark 3D. That I think so. Some pretty esoteric you can ask that. the most esoteric things ever. Yeah. If you want. Alright, any other questions? Alright, yeah, I would say, I saw your hand and then yours, if you guys want to just go to the mic, you can just, and you can go to the mic too, I'll make up embarrassing questions if you don't. Oh wait, that's... The, please go to the mic. Yeah, please go to the mic. <laughs> you know, like, no, we want the embarrassing questions from Brenda. Uh, yeah, I just want to, I just want to ask, um, I don't know much about the very inner workings of Ironstone, but I know Tom Hall is there as well, and I quite like the Macrox, and... I know that game kind of got a bit of a shaft, and I just, I'm just curious to know more of the details around that time and around what was happening, because it's something that I think a sequel would have been really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there needs to be an Iron Storm book. There's, um, there is a really great article on Salon that came out, you know, 15 years ago, probably. It's called An Elegy to Iron Storm, written by Christian Devine, who is the writer for the Life of Strange Games. And he was at Iron Storm. Uh, he made the Daikatana story up and wrote on Daikatana. He wrote on Deus Ex. He wrote on Anagronox, I think. So he's, he's been, he was involved with everything. And so he did a really great write-up of what it was like to be in Iron Storm. Um, but Tom, uh, Tom had a great, a really cool vision to basically take Final Fantasy VII and make a Western version of that with his own crazy ideas. And that's basically what Anachronox was, and, and uh, it took four years to make Anachronox. So when I got done with Daikatana, I worked on a prototype for just a couple of months, and then I basically spent the next year working on Anachronox with Tom and, and the team. And I brought my team over to, to help Anachronox, so the team got like 50% bigger. 
um, to basically get that last year out. And, uh, and it, was, it was great. I mean, it was really fun at that time uh, making the game because those co-founders were not the company anymore and the company was just clear of any kind of weirdness and everyone could just focus on developing. And, uh, and, it, and it went really, really well. Uh, the problem was that because of Daigatana, uh, our publisher kind of looked at the Dallas comp- the Dallas office as being a, let's not spend money on that office anymore, uh, meaning the games that they're making, let's not promote them. Uh, Deus Ex came out and it did amazingly well. Game of the Year did, did so well. Um, they, the yeah, they, yeah, Game of the Decade for some places. So they focused their marketing on, on Deus Ex. So, unfortunately, uh, Anachronox was an amazing game, and they got no marketing because they just didn't focus on it because of the whole Dallas situation. It was like, get the game done, let's shut it down, and we'll just focus on the Deus Ex franchise going forward. So that's what they did, but unfortunately, they left out this amazing game called Anachronox. That's, it, it was totally Final Fantasy VII for the Western audience. Yeah, I think that's an important thing, actually, with thinking about Storm that you think of a combat where you've got the tank going in, sort of Daikatana was the tank, uh, and it, 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 it felt like a tank might, um, but ultimately... Uh, Actually, another game fell before Daikatana did. Oh, that's right. There was an RTS that we made called Dominion, and it was actually a game that was being developed at a different company that my, those two co-founders, um, they brought with them, and so they wanted to finish developing it, and they did, and unfortunately, that game came out when StarCraft came out. Like, the same day. And that just destroyed that game. And the funny thing is, if you actually do any kind of Googling about it, uh, the developers of StarCraft came to an E3 and saw Dominion and went, oh my god, we need to change our game. Because the art was so good for Dominion. And uh, the guys making StarCraft were like, we can't do what we're doing. This game is like going to come out and just blow us away. So they went insane on StarCraft for the next year. And then when, when StarCraft came out, it decimated the media. There was a game that I worked on that was similar to that uh, called Jagged Alliance that probably nobody's heard of, but it released within, I think, the same week as XCOM. And they had aliens. Same. You can't beat those the same kind of game, but with aliens. Yeah. So game development. Things like that happen. There's only 365 games in a year. Yeah. And there's there's like a thousand games released on Steam per week now. So crazy. yeah, it's crazy. Alright. Uh, we have PBS. Go ahead. Hello. Um as a music composer, I'm dying really hungry to know how was the process of your collaboration with uh, Trent Reznor. Um, well, we did not, we didn't tell Trent how to make any music, like that was up to him. He got to see what the game was like, uh, so when he'd come into the office, we would show him the latest build, and he would kind of, we you know, run him through the four different episodes, and he could see what the, the themes looked like, and how fast it was, and just kind of get a general idea of it. While we're making the game, we wanted to have some music playing in it so we could also kind of be inspired by something that was maybe close to what he was going to make. So Trent had a friend who had made uh, really cool ambient music and he sent us a bunch of MP3s and we just kind of hooked them up to levels. So basically while we're developing Quake's levels, we're listening to somebody else's music while we're playing the levels. 
waiting to be able to switch them out for trend stuff. And uh, Chris Brenna actually did most of the music uh, under Trent's direction. And Trent did all the streams and he did the title song, uh, audio, and all that kind of stuff. But it was really Chris who did a lot of the, um, the actual hands-on creation of the music. And, uh, and he knew that we really liked the stuff that, that they had sent us to test with. So when we uh, could switch out his stuff, it wasn't like completely different. Um, but the nice thing was that the other person's music was MP3. <laughs> and Trent's was all on the CD. Uh, but, the, but the creation process was really pretty hands-off. They just did everything when they were in New Orleans. He had his, his place in New Orleans. Uh, basically, his house was like right next to Anne Rice's house. And, um, and so he, he did all of it from there and uh, just sent stuff to us. Uh, the release of the game actually was held up because uh, we were waiting for the 12 signatures from Interscope to release all of those songs. So yeah, involving people who are really famous uh, really slows things down sometimes. Just a random, this is random non-embarrassing trivia about you. There was a point in your career when you had to choose between games and metal music. Because John is... No! Yeah, because yeah, you can... No, that was, yeah, you know, you can actually... There's, oh god, there's so many weird stories there, but John, um, I had a choice between singing metal uh, and programming, and programming one. Although you had the hair for metal. Or art. You know. Yeah. Uh, okay, what would we do this side? Speaking of hair, what's the secret of yours? <laughs> if your hair just like, there's going to be some magical properties of just it being so awesome. I know, because I'm over, I'm over 50. I'm almost 51. Um, and usually people don't have hair that long. So, or they don't have five times the hair they actually No. <laughs> people, people, yeah, so I get this question uh, every once in a while, and it's funny because it's like cheating um, because it's just genetics, really. Uh, my, um, on both sides of my family, one side is uh, Yaki, Pascal Yaki, uh, in uh, Native Americans and Aztec, and the other side has Cherokee. So, Long hair is inevitable. It's gonna happen. Um, and none of my family's hair went away, so they didn't lose any hair. And um, and then people ask me what kind of shampoo and stuff. Like <laughs> just normal stuff. Um, nothing, nothing special there, uh, except that I use this uh, this hair oil stuff at the very end to stop all frizzy kind of stuff. So I put it on my hair, put some hair oil on it, and that's it. You've donated it to a couple times. Yeah, I cut it all off a couple times. Donated it. Alright. Yeah, anything else you need to know about her? Sounds pretty, yeah. Here, have some DNA. Hi, yeah, so I'm trying to say Quake 2 was probably the soundtrack of that game, was probably what got me into metal music at the time. Absolutely love that soundtrack. Loved it. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, my question was actually regarding the um, like constraints of building games in the nice as well, because obviously a big thing of like Doom and so on was the 2D uh, like enemy sprites in a 3D space. So I was wondering like, what it was like working with like, the technological constraints at the time. Yeah, every time we made a game, it was like starting from scratch at that time. So even going from um, Commander Keen to Wolfenstein was so different. Even though we could luckily use uh, my tool that I wrote to create levels, uh, we were creating them in a more abstract way with Wolfenstein. Um, we're still using sprites, so 2D is is there forever, you know. 
Um, and then when we start moving into Quake uh, technology where we're doing everything in 3D, and there's no sprites except for UI, you know, user interface stuff on the screen, status bar and all that, um, we had to figure out, like, wow, how do we make 3D models? Like, what do we use? We, we have Deluxe Paint 2. <laughs> that was the only program we had. So, uh, so at that time, I don't think there was any really good 3D program on the PC. You know, for, at that time, it was like 386s and Pentiums were just starting, Pentium 90s, 60s and 90s. So we bought um, an SGI Gecko, or the Indigo, this uh, SGI Indigo, they were like teal-colored 90s, teal-colored 80s, teal-colored computers um, that uh, ran a program that we called, it was called Alias. And uh, so Alias was the program that we used to create our 3D models. And, uh, and even the skinning process of, of putting the texture on all the sides of the, the model, which is called skinning, where you have to take the polygons and flatten them out on a 2D surface for artists to just draw on, because you couldn't draw on a model like you can nowadays with ZBrush and, and Substance and all that. This is like ancient history. Um, so you had to basically take a texture, all the, all the textures on the character get pulled out. Unfortunately, at that time, skinning was so limited that that a lot of the side textures, if you didn't have a point at the, at the ends of the side of the character, it would just streak uh, pixels down the sides of the character. So we did have streaks in some of those characters if you look really closely, but we tried to eliminate most of them. Um, but we, we created super low polygon count models in Alias. Um, just to give you an, an, an idea of how limited we were on polygons and rendering and stuff, when we were drawing the scenes in Quake, the screen was only 320 by 200 pixels. 320 pixels across, 200 high. It was full 3D, so when we were drawing um, the graphics, there was no such thing as a 3D card back then. Like, we couldn't just, like, send things to a card. Like, nowadays, you just send polygons to a video card that just renders it on the screen. Perspective, correct texture mapping, and, 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 and all kinds of shaders and stuff. Back then it was like we had control of the screen memory where every dot was being placed. And so we to draw the polygons, we had to figure out every all the calculations for how we would take a 2D texture and change it to be, you know, this weird angled polygon on the screen and draw every pixel correctly so it looked like it should at that from that angle. It was it was it took a year of really hard work just to make that part happen. And, and as a comparison, before Quake, when we made Doom, it took two months to make it, uh, make Doom's engine basically render a world. And with Quake, it took like a year to get that solid. So it was really difficult making it, having to put every pixel on the screen individually. Um, so, uh, so that pro so because of that, you know, that was we need a high frame rate and all that. We had to limit the amount of polygons we could have on the screen. We limited ourselves to 350 polygons for the world polygons, and then um, we just kind of limited ourselves on the texture, on the polygon limits on the actual characters themselves. But the world only had 350 polygons. Like you don't even have less than that in someone's hand nowadays, like or even a finger. So it's Crazy, but um, 
But yeah, it was like starting over every time we made a game. It was just like lots of technical problems to solve, but it was, uh, we, we knew we could solve them. It was just like, how fast can we do it? Because other people in the world are trying to do the same thing. We want to be first. Okay, quick question. You only get to give the answer because it's a horrible question to ask you. You're going to an island. You only get to bring one metal album with you. Oh my god. No, you can't say, oh my god. Which album's going? Alright, in the meantime, while you're thinking of that horrible answer, that will... go ahead. Uh, hey. Ooh, uh, good um, what is your favorite mod that you've ever seen of a game that you've worked on, and why is it Brutal <laughs> You answered it. <laughs> and why is it Brutal if we had come out with Doom looking the way Brutal Doom looks, the whole violence of video games thing would have been way worse. Can I actually, so just because it's an interesting thing that people might not know, so in, in addition, this isn't about me actually, but I'm also a game historian. So on December 9th, 1993, in the floor of Congress in the US, was this huge debate about video game violence. And Sega was there, Nintendo was there, like all the big players were there, and they, people that have enough of this horrible video game violence because of Mortal Kombat, hold on, you show up tomorrow. Mortal Kombat was out there and it was, you could rip a guy's heart out, which was around like 10 pixels or so, and then Night Trap. So this is December 9th. Meanwhile, do you have any idea what's happening? No, we don't care. And then what happens the next day? Yeah, we released in the next day. Just to make you understand the context. Let's just find violence of video games right now. So you understand, so if Brutal Doom had been released... Unbelievable. Unbelievable. They would have done it again. They would have had to run that whole thing in Congress again if Doom had come out the way Brutal Doom works today. It's amazing. So who's coming to the island with you? There's no way to know. I mean... You got well, I said with a Judas Priest, obviously, it's either one of those. Okay, but you got to pick one out. Yeah, it's really hard. All right, um, I'm going to give another question, you got to come up with an answer. Go ahead. Wolfenstein in Germany. What was that? Wolfenstein in Germany. wants to know about Wolfenstein and the censorship of it, because Germany only just lifted their rule about the depiction of Nazis in media, like, two days ago. Yep. Um, so there's this list in Germany uh, they have they have this banned images, a bunch of banned images in Germany that you can't have iron crosses and swastikas and all these, you know, even I think the SS symbol. There's a ton of these symbols that you will be thrown immediately in jail if you walk around with these things in Germany. Um, and uh, at that time, violent video games were kind of new, but they they knew that like Germany was was forbidden by the, the Allies. Um, to be violent after World War II, and so this is like decades old well, stuff. That includes any any display of Nazi. Yep, any display of, of the Reich's uh, symbols and any kind of um, aggression or violence. And so Wolfenstein actually comes from Castle Wolfenstein, like Silas Warner. Yeah, Castle Wolfenstein is a game that came out in 1981 uh, on the Apple II computer. It's kind of like, it's a it's a top down stealth game. Um, you're basically trying to disguise yourself like a Nazi and try and escape with the plans to the fortress and get out. You're an American soldier. Um, and it's all 2D and stuff. And so what we did when in 1992 was decide, why don't we make a 3D version of Wolfenstein 3D? Because we're trying to come up with an idea for a game using this new texture mapping um, 
this new texture mapping technique that we that we had just used in a game called Catacomb 3D like two months earlier. Um, and so we were, were like, what what could we do that's a really great idea? Like, what's an awesome idea? And so a couple of bad ideas were thrown around, and then I said, why don't we just remake Wolfenstein? And immediately everyone was like, oh my god, we have to do that. Like, we were total Wolfenstein fanatics. So, um, and, and that was ten years before, so... <laughs> So, uh, so we that's what we did. We made we made the game, and then it got listed like pretty soon you after it got. You mean banned, right? It got banned in Germany pretty quickly, um, but everybody in Germany, like everybody, wanted to play it really badly. So in Germany, people sold Wolfenstein under the counter in a game store. So, in, in just as in, without mentioning any names, just John and I are also living uh, uh, since we're here in Ireland. We're eventually opening a museum up in Galway for specifically about game design. Um, and we are part of a couple of groups that are game historians as well and collect big boxes. And we recently went to Germany where we had to meet someone in a private, we didn't have to, we agreed to, meet them in a private room so they could get their Wolfenstein boxes signed. Because it was... They still it was, couldn't show it. Still couldn't show it because if kids saw it or other people saw it, it would have been considered illegal and the games would have been confiscated. So, so this was just what the summer. Yeah, it was yeah, yeah. still still an issue. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, and it's just like this whole, you know, keep them from being aggressive. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting uh, to to I guess have a game banned, but they're selling it anyway under the, under the counter, and now it's like all over the internet, so you can easily get. Get uh, get wolf assigned so at any point. So you have uh, eight minutes left. Did you get an answer? What Um, I would say seven is the best thing. It's a good choice. Okay, that's Juice Priest is going to the island. Okay, uh, which side was I before? Okay, it's in Europe. Um, do you have any recommendations for like resources for game design, like books or websites? And also, when is that museum opening? <laughs> The focus for Galway 2020, so we've got, uh, we certainly have all the materials, um, just a random piece of trivia, John, with the exception of some, a few discs and a notebook, uh, has never gotten rid of anything in his entire history. So we actually... So from being a teenager, yeah. like all my drawings, uh, all the video games I made on Apple II and assembly language and stuff, I have all so the games, I have all the source code for most of them, the lots of drawings. Yeah, the first replicated Doom discs, all the notes to create the Doom Bible. People have heard about the Doom Bible, which was the design doc that we used to start making the game. But I have all the notes used to create the Doom Bible. Um, I have, we have unbelievable amounts of stuff for first person. So the, postal, the hope is 2020. Sometime in 2020, I mean, we're also game developers, so my crazy museum idea, but... Yeah, we're making games at the same time. Yeah, but anyway, so within a year we'll figure something. Well, we have more than yeah. a year, but yeah, we're getting we're better at this sort of... And as far as resources go, what I would say is uh, email me, and if any of you are interested in that, just send me an email to brenda at romero.com, especially if it has to do with game design, and I can send you a bunch of information on that. All right, we'll go to the site. Hi. Uh, as someone who's been making games since the very early days of the industry, and still making games now, it's a billion dollar, only billion dollar industry. What would you say is the biggest positive and negative of how the industry has changed and grown over that time? Uh, well, the biggest positive is that so many more people are playing games, and they're making games. So it's like a massive game world now compared to the way it was back in the 70s and 80s. Um, 
Well, you know, so that's really great. When we came out with Doom, I couldn't wait to license that engine to see more games that I didn't make. I wanted to play other shooters, and and um, and I think everybody that that makes games loves playing them, and the more the better. So the fact that the industry has totally exploded has been awesome. Just, the, just it's unbelievable to see the stuff that's coming out nowadays. Um, and the, the things that have changed is like everything. Everything you can possibly name in game development or even the final games themselves, everything has changed unbelievably. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the Red Dead Resurrection, uh, or Red Dead Redemption 2, you should call it something like that. Uh, and seen the gameplay videos for that? It's almost like every game made in one game. It's, I thought Zelda was amazing. Uh, the, the Breath of the Wild, but oh my god, this Red Dead Redemption 2, Insane. I, I don't even know how long it would take to make something like that if you didn't have a giant team like Rockstar. Yeah, the part of this question, I think, is, and I, I, my guess is you'll agree with this, is like, what's the worst thing? And I feel like the worst thing for me is because there's so many great games being released, I have this awareness, if I quit my job this minute and do nothing but play games until somehow I drop dead, which I guess if I did nothing but play games, that would happen. But, uh, but there's there's just no way to play every single There's a thousand games. releases a week, yeah. you can't do that. But to play, like, even with the really great ones. Just the great ones, yeah. And and, uh, and just the fact that like the, the whole game industry was started by indie game developers. Publishers were just a couple people who took submissions from people who were indies making games and distributed them. So the industry, the industry was started by indies, but it's so great to see how big the indie uh, community is nowadays, and the kinds of risks that they take with their game designs, and the fact that I think that, that the indies have have pioneered the narrative exploration genre that's emerging right now, with you know what Randy Beat and Finch and and Thomas was alone, and you know Firewatch and her story, just all these other these games are amazing. Um, but it's it's it, it's so cool to see how how diverse the the topics. And R for games now. It used to be shooting aliens, and now it's about everything. So you've got three minutes. All right. So we're going to this side, and then back to that side. Susan, you're now on lightning round questions. <laughs> so with the new Super Smash Bros. game that's coming out soon, uh, would you ever add like any characters from Doom in the future in the game now? Or I wish Doom guy was in there. The Doom Slayer now is what we call him. <laughs> but yeah, he'd be he'd be awesome. But would you ever like add him to the actual Super Smash Bros. roster? Like, if you contacted the Nintendo? Well, I don't work at Bethesda or it anymore, so I'm you know they would probably do it. Probably Bethesda would be the one in charge of that. Um, but yeah, that would be really cool. Especially if they have some documents. Yeah. <laughs> okay. well, hello, how's it going? Uh, so basically, I find out what video games were by being shown Doom Two on a monitor on Windows ninety five uh, when I was a toddler. Uh, I haven't seen anything on screen before. Thank you, John. But uh, <laughs> uh, so I feel like there's a little bit of ownership. There's an Irish experience of video games. We kind of we, we were exposed to them in a in a way that should be unique, maybe, or maybe because it's a different market in Europe or whatever. But is there anything you've observed from living in Ireland about how we interact with games here? Do you, do you feel that there's an Irish experience that's got a flavour to it? Uh, I don't think I've really. There, the um, we've seen uh, game developers in Ireland developing games that are Irish, yeah. uh, that only they could develop, you know, that they really understand. 
Um, and it's cool to see that, you know, to see that, that uh, people are kind of making cultural games, like, like uh, what was that, Never Alone? Or the, the, it was Never Alone, yeah. yeah Never Alone. So, so we're seeing some more of this um, cultural stuff. <clears throat> so that, in, in Ireland, that's probably the only thing no, that's there's true. another one. I, can I jump in on your question? This is the embarrassing part, sort of. So John, we had a, we had a, a death match. Uh, Death Jam in Galway uh, just a few weeks back, where it was the Irish, the best Irish deathmatch quake players. Quake players, and they were brutal. Uh, after just the timeline, this guy Koopa attended, and it was just, it was just like watching, I don't know, I, it, it was crazy. Um, so he was playing the whole time. But one thing, so I, but I suck, right? So I was talking to a lot of people. And the Irish first-person shooter scene, as well as other games, especially because there just wasn't that broadband availability, right? Or people were finding out of it. Because you weren't going to say roll into, I don't know, Letterkenny and find uh, an EB Games with all the games you ever wanted. A lot of stuff was past people, especially shareware was incredibly important. And then people were playing on modems with horrible connections, right? And so players, like all these sort of weird strategies developed to overcome the technical limitations. And also, people tended to get together much yeah, more often. And then they would say, like, Koopa would go over to, uh, to London or something and compete. And they would discover Swedish players were doing this one thing. So one of them would bring that back to Ireland. Um, and then, uh, but the players, there became this very unique play style in shooters that was happening in Ireland, influenced largely by, uh, well, first of all, the Irish players that were internationally competitive, and then Swedish players. And so when they first met the guys from America, the first teams that they met from America, funny enough, had not seen some of these new techniques and just destroyed. Just absolutely got destroyed. But the, because of the lack of broadband availability, there were, there were people playing in person and they got to know each other really well. And like I had such a great experience seeing these guys who in some cases didn't even know each other's names. Like and there was never saw who I've seen never saw each just other. because I think there there are kids in the audience, so I'm just gonna make something up. Um, so let's just say a guy came up and he was like, Hi, uh, I'm uh, Eamon. Right? And the other guy shakes his hand, he's like, Oh, and they're trying to see he goes like dump truck. And the guy goes like, Oh, dump truck, I haven't seen you for fifty years or whatever. But anyway, that ended up just being a really great experience. So yeah, there are unique things. Um, and with that, John is now officially one minute over. Judas Priest uh Saturn's Destiny is going to the island, you're still not a fan. Alright. Yeah. Yeah? Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so you're catching us on the podcast and you want to find out, well, what if I want to listen live and I'm not in Ireland? Well, the TuneIn app has you covered. That's TuneIn. Just look for Phoenix 92.5 FM and you'll be able to check us out live. Don't forget, if you want to contribute to the conversation, go over to Twitter. nerd 2 92.5 is our Twitter. That's nerd 2 the number 2, no 92.5 is our Twitter for the show. If you want to chime in, you can. Every Saturday, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. here on Phoenix 92.5 FM.